immersive audio podcast. In conversations with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Hello and welcome to the episode 50 of the Immersive Audio Podcast. Today we have special anniversary episode featuring Victor Phoenix, Henrik Opperman, JP Baudoir. Hello guys and very warm welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast. How are you today? Great, Oliver. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Very good, thank you. Our hot topic today is the state of immersive audio, how far we've come, where we are today, and where we're heading as an industry. We're going to unpick these points in greater detail and talk about some exciting project case studies the guys have been involved with over the years. But before we dive in, can you please introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Let's go around the virtual table. Victor. Sure. My name's Victor Phoenix. I uh, have been working with JP at Headspace, I believe, since 2018. Um, uh, I got my start working with spatial audio and interactive audio um, in AAA games. I started in development around 2001 uh, at a very short-lived studio um, called Sammy Studios that was eventually merged with Sega. And then uh, I moved on to Pandemic Studios, um, known for um, we were we developed some games uh, for PS2, PS3, PS4, Xbox, Xbox One, Two, PC, um, Mercenaries, Mercenaries Two, um, Full Spectrum Warrior, Star Wars Battlefront One and Two, things like that. And I uh, moved into XR uh, in 2014. And never looked back. Hi, my name is Henrik Opperman, and uh, I'm based in London, and I'm running a company called Schallgeber, um, producing purely immersive sound, and um, been around for a while in in immersive audio. I think it's around six years. Um, I don't know, like. Um, basically starting around the same time as JP and also got to know him quite early on. Um, and um, yeah, it's, it's been a lovely ride so far and, and it was um, great to work on, 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 on developing, uh, experimenting, researching and, and building and, and, and contributing to, to the immersive audio world basically. And uh, it, it's still, I have the feeling everything is still very early on and there's so much to explore and learn and um, merging technologies together. So, so it's, it's still quite an exciting field and I'm looking forward to chat with you all today. You'll be curious to learn that um, Henrik was our very first guest, uh, which is now going back uh, almost over three years ago. And when we record our first uh, episode uh, in the old studio, um, I remember I was very nervous. Uh, I, I wasn't sure what I was doing, but um, you know, Henrik uh, have given us a really interesting overview and the kind of things he's he was doing at the time, kind of projects he's been involved with, what kind of, like talking about workflow and technologies. And um, it's it's been over three years and a lot has changed and a lot has happened. And, you know, I guess one of the uh, reasons why we've decided to look at the 
the kind of this the state of immersive audio today, um, past, present, and future is to evaluate and assess what has happened, how much the industry has involved, and I'm sure you guys will, will do a great job answering some of those questions. All right, JP. Hi, so uh, my name is Jean-Pascal Baudouin, JP from now on. I'm surprisingly, I'm actually a trained architect, and I do mention it because um, I think this is really where uh, interest in spatial audio comes from. Um, as as many people studying studying in architecture, I was also a musician, and uh, or at least trying to be one, and uh, and I got onto recording and all of that. And um, eventually came to post-production. And um, I always felt that like stereo, mono, stereo, and even surround to a certain extent was was quite frustrating because it didn't allow you to play with audio in a way that I would call spatial. So, um, you know, as soon as I I discovered ambisonics and and everything related to that, and much later on, sixed off audio, um, I think it really connected for me for my interest in, you know, being able to tell stories spatially. So um, I think that's why this field is so interesting, both from a technical perspective, but also from a creative perspective. I'd been working with a few directors, of course, uh, working post-production, um, but immersive directors, Felix and Paul, uh, who later on became Felix and Paul Studios, uh, were really at the forefront of VR. I remember Paul um, getting the very first uh, Oculus SDK, and it was like they, you know, they they came to me and said, "JP, we th- we think we can." They had already been, you know, playing with stereoscopic content, and we're like, "We think we can get, uh, you know, a full 360 stereoscopic uh, working." We need we need audio for this, so I was you know, quite thrilled by the challenge. And, and since, since then we, we, we never looked back. Um, so I was, I was really happy when, uh, you know, we started, um, Headspace studio, um, about five years ago and, uh, Almost three years ago, uh, Victor uh, joined us, and we were able to open our LA facility. So, um, yeah, it's been it's been quite a ride. Amazing, and I must mention that we're doing a great job choreographing this uh, call. Uh, logistically speaking, you know, we're based in different parts of the world. Uh, JP and currently in Montreal, Canada. Uh, Victor, you are in LA, and. Myself and Henrik, we are in London. Unless Henrik uh, sneaked out to Germany. Uh, no, I'm I'm north of the river right now. You know, I've I've known Henrik for over five years, I believe now, and um, I've known you guys for roughly the same amount of time, but we, we haven't really like spoken properly. So we we connected more recently through the well-known um, forum that JP and Victor you got you guys been running, and uh, that's that's where we also um, promote our podcast and share our episodes to the community. Let's start with how far we've come. I'm curious to hear from each of you, what was your early and very first experience with spatial audio on a personal or professional levels? Where did you get started? What was the state of immersive audio at the time in terms of technology and consumer expectations? And if you can go around the table again. Sure, um, I can start. uh, When I uh, first started working in game development, 
Um, we were using Microsoft's middleware uh, at the time called Exact, and it included a uh, HRTF um, binaural renderer. Um, and it was something I had never uh, experienced or worked with at the time. This was about 2001, 2002. Um, and uh, it was something we didn't really utilize because the games we were developing were were meant to be played with over headphones and over speakers. But then uh, years later, uh, I was um, the audio lead on a game called uh, Evolve, back starting in about 2012. And it's a it was a first person shooter and um, designed to be played uh, with headphones. And we were experimenting with ways to locate the uh, the enemy, the enemies essentially. And I just kept having the hardest time emulating um, and modeling distance and sound propagation and localization. And um, and at the time, the uh, the major middleware players uh, we were using FMOD um, and uh, Wise, of course, being the other major one at the time, we didn't have uh, HRTF plugins um, for binaural rendering, and it. It was so clear at the time that that was the answer when um, you just couldn't localize a sound uh, in along the azimuth, and um, you know we tried all the, faking it with um, different EQs and different pre-rendered assets. But that was when I really started to click that this there's something that can be done in real time to to move a sound around the the field, um, and that those were the even though they were, you know, a decade apart, um, the the idea that these sounds could be changed at runtime was fascinating to me. Well, wow, that's that's two thousand one. That's that's fascinating. That's well before our time. Mm. <laughs> well, I, it's interesting. I uh, you know this was just my begin when I was just first starting out in the game industry, and I thought I was remembering it incorrectly, but um, at I believe it was AES in LA. I was doing a small, um, uh, maybe AES 2017. I was doing a small panel, and I saw Scott Selfon, who at the time was still at Microsoft. And I ran up to him before I started speaking and asked if I was remembering that correctly. And he said, "Yep," and that because that was his team's uh, um, his team's work. So yeah, they they had that um, ability back uh, back in two thousand one to do that. One of the conclusions we can draw with confidence is that you look younger than you are, Victor. <laughs> oh, great job! I don't know if I if I do, but <laughs> I'm seventy five years old. <laughs> no, I was I was uh, I was a, a young twenty four at the time. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Henrik. Yes, um, for me, it all started out like basically working as a sound designer in a studio in, 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 in Frankfurt and also having access to multi-channel speaker setups and starting to work and explore with Max MSP and thinking about sound differently in a, in a non-linear setup and, and also like just to play around with installations of, of speakers uh, in, in, in different ways um, and um, after I finished my studies in Germany I then decided to uh, do masters in London at Goldsmiths College um, 
where I had access to to more um, multi-channel speaker setups, like the, they had an uh, 8.1 studio and SPAT and Pro Tools, which was constantly crashing. And um, but it was always exciting to play around with. Um, <clears throat> and when I left university, it was a bit like um, it would be nice to work in 3D audio, but it, it wasn't really. Uh, a market there or, or or something that where you can apply it really and then VR basically happened and um, I got in basically connected to to visualize and um, I was presented with virtual reality and VR headsets and then it all started making sense in connection to head tracking and headphones and having um, 3D audio as a medium that is accessible to everyone um, at the time, I wouldn't think that it would that the technology would um, develop really that fast as it did. Um, but <clears throat> then I basically was was really geared towards that and and pushed really hard to 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 go into this uh, uh, immersive audio uh, world and to explore it. And I started basically recording sound for um, virtual reality with. Um, uh, with a double MS from Sheps and um, had basically this this horizontal sound field, uh, which then was processed into a 5.1 system. And at the time, I think the only solution for Unity was um, for HRTF uh, integrated was the two big ears solution, which is now part of the Facebook 360 environment, basically, um, as as two big ears was was bought up. Uh, by Facebook, um, and that that was basically starting out with like having five um, separate sound sources, uh, recreating a five point one bed inside Unity, and nothing was ever running in sync, and um, there was no ambisonic support uh, in that sense. Uh, and then at some point, um, Sennheiser came along and basically gave me the the first prototype of of the Ambio VR mic to test. Um, because I guess the, the only people who were working in, in, in 360 video full-time were JP and, and myself at the time. Um, and um, I, I remember that lollipop stick. <laughs> yes, uh, it was very funny. Um, and, uh, but it was great. And it was, it was fantastic being part of, of like, uh, giving feedback and developing this product with them um, on, on hardware and also software basis. And it's, it's been... Uh, um, uh, really fun to to see this whole ecosystem develop and and, and grow and just uh, being excited by something that was happening at the time and uh, and um, yeah still seeing how it's growing is great. So I think as I mentioned previously, um, you know I'd always had this frustration of you know just surround. Um, not being able to express or play with audio really spatially in, in the sense of, of real three dimensions. However, if you don't have a good use case for it, you know, unless you've got a lot of time on your hands, uh, not much is going to happen. And to be honest, I was just this, you know, working in traditional post and I didn't come as much as I, you know, went to university for architecture. As far as audio is concerned, I was not... Uh, technically inclined person. Um, and um, it's really when Felix and Paul came with this this first um, 
project where they had you know capture a scene in full 3D 360 and they were like JP we need we need audio for this so it, it I had to get something going um so it's that I I contacted at the time um I do not remember his name but um the guy who runs a company called 3DIO and he was um he had he had done this prototype of a of a quad stereo binaural microphone for Chris Milk at the time that's around 2014. And um, I was like, I, I I need this. So so we talked and uh, he got a microphone, one of these for me. And then it was like, how do I do post-production for this? And there was very, almost no plugins available at the time. And uh, the only thing I'd found was our cams uh, here uh, plugin which allowed you to do uh, binaural amongst you know several um, immersive formats. Um, so I started with that. It was extremely uh, grueling because you had to do a mix for zero degree, one for ninety, one for one eighty, one for two seventy. So really four separate mixes, and uh, and then you uh, we used basic crossfading, um, you know, link to head tracking in Unity to to get that working. So it 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 turned out it was a happy accident. Obviously, had I had all that technical knowledge at the time, I might have you know, dabbled with, with ambisonics already, but I did not. And it worked out quite well. So the first, um, I would say, 10 projects I did in 360 um, VR uh, are all quad stereobionaural and are all obsolete because of that. <laughs> so it's not, it's not a format that's, uh, that is uh, forward-facing for sure. Um, yeah, but that, that, was, uh, that was it. Interesting. Um, three very, very different kind of angles and perspective. Uh, I might as well chip in the fourth one since we're talking here. My kind of um, early experience with spatial audio, I guess, was at the university. So I did a project about Dolby Atmos. Dolby Atmos at the time was this very kind of um, inaccessible, expensive, mysterious technology that you know, very few people knew about, let alone knew how to use, etc. And um, even I think as a consumer at the time, I think you can only really experience it in one venue in London, Empire Cinema at Leicester Square. And um, and just around the time, it happened to be that um, a new small boutique cinema opened up in near Hammersmith area, West London, where Olympic Studios used to be based. Um, apparently quite iconic studios, you know, Rolling Stones, big names used to record there. Anyways, um, so they just installed a new Atmos rig and I, I, I went there to watch uh, Gravity in 3D. So that was my very early experience as a consumer. It was absolutely amazing, stunning. And, and remember the difference was that the director whose name escapes me right now, really conceived the whole sound design strategy with Atmos in mind. So at the time, there was one of the very few early productions that actually utilized Atmos to kind of creatively rather than trying to, you know, uh, squeeze like your standard 5.1 and, and do like kind of mixing in that way. And then fur further down the line, when I was doing my master's, um, start working with Surround, only like 5.1 and 7.1 at the time. And then and then we had access to, towards the and of course we had access to Aura 3D. And that was kind of mainly 
music-centric because of the nature of the school, I guess. And then there was a bit of a demonstration how to use a number sonic microphone, a good old sound-filled microphone with a rack unit processor, absolutely huge and, and ancient, requires um, uh, mains power. And um, there was really no perspective on head tracking and, you know, three degrees of freedom and how ambisonics are a more superior format compared to others in within the context of, you know, uh, three degrees of freedom and whatnot. It was more much more academic, you know, here, here is the ensemble that we're recording with ambisonic mic and, and that's it. And not really only until I met Henrik, who kindly invited me to... Um, to the 360 shoot uh, for the British Army project, Visualize, that I kind of, my my kind of world opened up into the kind of what we call XI industry, as we call it today. Um, and uh, that's when the, all the dots started joining. It sounds like we all had these like aha moments where where these, are either our education or our background, you know, and the, the this wasn't quite working. And then, we we seem to all have these moments where oh this is what I've been trying to do and uh, it feels like there's this there was a uh, it wasn't just it was around Oculus for sure when you know when the um, the first uh, DK one came out I think but that re- really was the impetus for this but so much happened around such a short amount of time um, for so many so many people it's fascinating it's great to hear it all laid out here so Oliver I have a question for you uh, real quick if you don't mind. Um, so we know and JP mentioned that he he studied architecture. Um, I'd love to hear you and Henrik. Are your when you went to school? Did you go to school for audio? Uh, yes, I did. Um, in fact, oh, I have to rewind uh, quite a few years back. So I'm originally from Latvia, one of the Baltic states uh, in Northern Europe or Eastern Europe, depends how you look at it. Um, and uh, I was really into music when I was. Uh, teenager and um, trying to learn music production, you know, Fruity Loops and <laughs> all that crap. And, um, you know, even start taking uh, uh, piano lessons and solfeggio lessons um, much later. And um, so I was 100%, you know, convinced that this is the thing I want to be doing. But um, in the very small country, we really didn't have, I mean, it's crazy to think about it because, you know, if you look at what's available to young people in London is you're absolutely support for choice. Back then, there was really nothing. You couldn't do like a music technology degree or anything along those lines. So um, luckily at the time, I already had a connection with the UK because my, my brother uh, lived here and um, uh, I was lucky enough to, to come and visit him and he took me out and um, I, I got to experience like a, a nightlife and, you know, clubbing in the UK, which was absolutely amazing um, and still is. Um, but we, we you know, I, I, I got a chance to kind of witness a bit of an old school vibe, if you know what I mean. And um, that completely uh, blew my mind. And I thought, this is the place where I'd like to come and, you know, I don't know how, but somehow. But the problem at the time uh, might be hard to believe, but I couldn't speak the language. Uh, at all, so I had to dedicate first two. E- really, wow, you did you, <laughs> you did good. Um, uh, I had to dedicate first two years just to kind of um, to learn the language, really, and I was so desperate um, to be able to apply for a course. So I was literally walking with two dictionaries um, uh, around myself. People thought I was I was mad. What, what did you say that what was that word? Uh, and then quickly finding the translation. It was literally like that. It was like mad obsession uh, 
because the the point was to to be able to communicate and understand on a level so you can go and study and that's why I applied for not not degree but a, a college course uh, in the UK college is a is a level lower before university where I did um B, BTEC national diploma two years that was a really good primer you know like a bit of everything live sound production midi you know recording bits and pieces and that that was a really really good primer for me uh, and then only then then I was able to go and study um a degree in London and then I did me- bachelor's in music tech specialist and then I did master's in advanced music uh, technology the the course I'm currently teaching at the moment um, that sound processor is still there <laughs> so yeah I mean it's been when it comes to Victor your question about uh, studying sound like it, it it was a 12 year journey for me and it's it looks like it's going to be another f- six or seven years <laughs> so yeah I think it's that kind of industry isn't it we you, you can't stop you have to keep going and there's there's there is always more to learn the more you know you know like the more you learn um uh, the more you learn, the more you realize that you know very little. The, the Dunning-Kruger, for sure, the Dunning-Kruger effect. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's so true, and and I don't know if you guys experience the same thing, but you know, I, I had for a, I wouldn't say a long time, but I did have the imposter syndrome, and I was like, I'm just figuring out things as they go, and and there's also the fact that spatial audio is very, I mean, if you just look at the Spatial Audio and VR group on Facebook, 99% of the conversations are about technology, uh, microphones, gear, um, algorithm. UCG format. Exactly, you know, and <laughs> the fact is that nobody, and it's true for sound period, I would say, uh, for films, but very, very little conversation um, is about the art of doing things. And, you know, I came to realize that at one point where, well, this is where my strength lies is understanding enough of the science and uh, e- everything technical related to it to know what I can do and what would be required to achieve it. Um, but as a medium, also, to me, that's the part that's most fascinating is um, is really the sense of presence, immersion, and so on. How do we craft this? How do we, um, once we have it, how do, how do we make sure that our spectators um, still, it's not interrupted? You know, there's so many questions related to that. I think that's so fascinating and there's so very little we know, but... Yeah, it's such a it's it's very intimidating. I find as a field, even for people who have experience in, let's say, you were you were mentioning uh, Oliver music production. It's and it it get I think it gets to one of our topics was where is this heading? We see um, we see companies like Sony and Dolby, um, you know, trying to do a big push uh, for um, you know, spatial audio production for music, you know, that's, that's rather, that's quite new. That's quite recent. Um, so I, I think of all these, these great music producers who suddenly you add a new dimension to the medium. They've been, you know, they've been perfecting their production techniques for years and so on. And suddenly there's like this completely new <laughs> dimension opening up. Uh, it, I'm sure it can be uh, intimidating. Absolutely, I agree. Yeah, same here. 
I, I mean, I absolutely feel imposter syndrome still. And, you know, I've, in a way, I, I've been doing this interactive audio for 20 years, and there's always more to learn, 100%. Um, what, uh, so, Henrik, did you, do you study music or sound specifically? Funny enough, I also um, started studying architecture. Um, there was always this oh, passion wow. about sound. My my uncle was like he's building his own speakers, and and they're just like absolutely phenomenal. And I, I think if you experience a, a, a high quality speaker system in, in in a correct space, it's just like pure magic. Really, it doesn't need to be three D or immersive. Just stereo correctly set up in the correct space is is enough three D already. Uh, but that's sadly not very often the case that you see. Um, I was always talking about like you, you always go into spaces or homes and, and there's a 5.1 setup and it's never never set up correctly. Uh, but this is also true for, for the stereo listening scenario. Like it, it, it's most people don't have it correctly aligned or the correct listening position. Um, <clears throat> so, so I think there, there's a, a lot in that, and um, this, this is really what, what, what grabbed my int- attention and, and, and my passion also. I started studying architecture, but maybe because of my family background. My father was a builder, and just um, that that came somehow. And like after the first semester, I realized this is not really really what I want and and I traveled for one and a half years um, and and worked and um, then I basically uh, made a jump in in, in studying sound Uh, and it was um, I'm I'm originally from Darmstadt uh, in Germany and there's um, a university University of Applied Sciences there and you could there was this this fresh course coming up which was called digital media um, sound uh, which is now having a, a, a different fancy name um, but it was hugely exciting to do something like this and I think if you if you're choosing a sound career in in, in German it's it's really in Germany it's really a high risk like in in, in the UK if I, I think it's being a sound engineer or even musician is way more accepted as a career than it is in Germany. In, in Germany, it's basically everybody looks at, at you like you're crazy a bit because it's it's not that accepted. And also, it's not like really a part of the industry in Germany, like in, in, in the UK and the States, you get really a music industry and an audio engineering industry. But Enric, please uh, allow me to ask you about... Um, Germany, as far as I know, is the only is the only country where you can become a tone meister, right? You can do it in the UK as well. Oh, you can in the UK as well. Uh, you, you can. Yeah. University of Surrey still still offers that option. But it's native to Germany. Let's agree on that. <laughs> Definitely. Of course, we we have a, a a rich history before something else happened, and then like maybe cut a bit into the shadows um this this music culture and it, it, it's in, in 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 the last century it maybe wasn't that important um and but it's it, it, yeah basically i studied uh, uh digital media sound and um from there on i worked two years after and then um i always had the feeling it, it, it was really weird sometimes in your life there is just something happening inside you and I, I knew I had to go to London 
Like there was there was no real big plan. There was like I, I just need to go and study there, um, and and I, I was so lucky to to get a scholarship um, in in Germany, and um, this was enabling me to go over. It, it enabled it basically it enabled me to to study anywhere where I wanted to study, and um, this was my clear vision going to London, and 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 study there and everything. Uh, develop from there. So my next thing is, I'm kind of changing my mind as as we go along because you're kind of guys answering some of those questions already. I guess I'd like to discuss or maybe like um, ask you about some of those essential anchor points, those kind of key transitional points within our industry that just enable us to raise the bar to the next level and I think I'll I'll start myself by giving some maybe lower hanging fruits and offering some examples here. So it does feel, even though we come from very different backgrounds and we had very different journeys, we we somewhat got united through this the development of Oculus as a startup technology and um, its acquisition by Facebook, and then that kind of new wave of virtual reality as 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 we know today. We know there was a small wave in the 60s, there was a, a bigger one in the 90s, but technology really wasn't quite there. So it feels like this time around, it's here to stay. And, you know, it's really hard to imagine that's um, that's going to, you know, have a uh, some kind of tail off and we 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 yet to see another level, but who knows. But going back to the audio, I feel like the, there's a few things that deserve a mention. For instance, the acquisition of Two Big Ears by Facebook, which I believe have enabled that kind of democratization. And because anyone could just have access to this amazing technology, absolutely free of charge, download um, a free or very well, inexpensive version of Reaper and just crack on. And, you know, I, I don't want to not talk about uh, other incredible brands and incredibly intelligent people have developed amazing tools. And there's quite a number of them and it, that, that number is growing, which is exciting. But it feels like that that particular combination really pushed the 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 ecosystem and and the community uh forward and and obviously major streaming platforms or social media platforms rather such as youtube and facebook obviously um allowed um content uh consumption in a relatively straightforward manner you see where i'm going with this is for you what if you could mention a couple of examples where you felt like another thing happened and feel like we we just switched the gears and we're going even faster and and uh, in, ter- in terms of going forward well i think oliver you touched on the, the obviously the most important one which was uh facebook but to me it's not so much about the tools which are of course important and uh, essential uh but it was it was that suddenly you had a platform that you could publish to and basically anyone could have access to it, you know, being Facebook 360 on your newsfeed um, and uh, Oculus, if you had access to a headset. And as you said, YouTube, that that was the fundamental shift. Um, that being said, I think it's important to um, talk here. Um, and I don't want to diverge from from, you know, your your question, Oliver, but I think it's important to differentiate between 3DOF audio and 6DOF audio because I, I think that uh, when we talk about spatial audio, uh, you know, yes, it's it's all one thing, but there um, 
they're so fundamentally different in the way they're distributed, the tools that you're using, and uh, that gap in in the tools and um, the workflows are so are so drastically different today. Even so, um, I think that that's um, maybe that's something we want to talk about after. Um, but I think it's important to differentiate between the two. But I think you you tapped on the most important one. That that was it for me. I don't know about you guys. I mean, for me, and it is the current events also. Uh, uh, basically, I guess the democratization um, on the production side is one big thing, but also the the democratization, um, the consumer side. Uh, and now we're seeing Apple jumping into the market with the head tracking support for. Um, the AirPod Pros, and uh, this is of course just three degrees of freedom, um, but it's very accessible, or it's it's becoming accessible. And um, Google uh, Pixel is going to have head tracking support. The Samsung uh, Galaxy Buds going to have uh, head tracking support. So so we we have all big platforms um, integrating um, head tracking uh, on, on, on a purely audio-only platform, uh, which is hugely exciting. And I think this is going to uh, trickle down into like future production and uh, new models of, of headphones to come. And I hope they can agree to a standard uh, where you can actually make an app and it will read the the same way the the head tracking so you can distribute your content uh, for that so so this is something very exciting and also the the further development of the uh, audio engines um, and how they support six degree six degrees of freedom audio and how they um, develop their sound and and the tools and and what I'm getting quite excited about is is the um, ray tracing. Uh, audio ray tracing algorithms that you can use on GPUs, like the um, True Audio Next on Radeon, and there's the NVIDIA VRWorks version, I believe, too. Um, and I think this is this is one secret ingredient on on how we actually model distance correctly, uh, because I think this is like one of the the, the hardest things to do to to um, create. Uh, believable distance models, and if we can uh, work with that inside game engines based on the given geometry that that we uh, establish, and then create a homogeneous uh, sound field, um, then it's going to be really uh, a game changer. I believe. Yeah, I definitely agree. Getting and, and the the getting back to uh, some of the early days of console development, where there were dedicated audio processing units, like in the PS2. But it, it is interesting how, like you mentioned with um, uh, Apple and Google, uh, Google's phones, it is interesting how consumers can now have access to spatial audio on their phones. And it was the mobile phone market and OEM market that enabled the current uh, wave of VR in the first place, uh, having small screens and processors that could fit into a small small headset. It's interesting how that one technology led into another one. I'm interested to see how it goes, what comes next and, and how we, you know, when we move outside of flat screens and into audio holography and all these other sci-fi fantasies for, for, for audio and visuals. But, um, 
Yeah, it's it, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, and again, just by what you guys uh, mentioned here, uh, Henrik and you, Victor, uh, last few comments just shows the the span between, you know, those early days and you know, let's call it like the the mad era of three sixty video, and um, how very quickly you know uh, we transitioned to the six off experiences and um, that seem to be more of a norm today. And now. We're talking about all these big technology companies, Apple, you know, uh, Dolby, various music streaming platforms, you know, um, Samsung, Google, all jumping on this, and um, it's becoming more of a norm. The, the fact that it's been five years, but uh, right now you can go and download Disney Plus on your smart device and use AirPods Pro and watch um, animation with. Um, Dolby Atmos AC4 codec and have tracked audio is absolutely nuts, and it works phenomenally. Mm-hmm. It, it's 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 really good. Um, it's 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 really nice. I enjoy it quite a lot. The industry has come really really far, and I guess it's a really nice segue to ask the question: What's coming next? And again, you you have touched on things that are not quite there yet, but like there's some interesting research, the interesting things in the pipeline for 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 the industry, so to speak. There's definitely a lot of interesting stuff happening in academia. Um, but I think what's what's really interesting to me in the in the more immediate future is the convergence that we're seeing and and really what we're hinting at when we talk about um three off and six off and and uh, and games and films and TV. and this we're seeing it more and more how the both the workflows and the content um, are really converging into very similar routes where you know when I first started if you worked in film there's no way you were going to work in games you just couldn't but just the the thinking was completely different and um, I remember when I when I first worked on a, a project a 360 video project um, I, I wasn't involved in the production I worked on the post-production side and um, when I used the the three sixty the Facebook three sixty tool, um, I think it was still called the Two Big Ears Spatial uh, Workstation at the time. Um, it in a way it made absolute sense to me because I was used to working with objects in game engines, and I could just attach a virtual object, a, a channel to to something in the um, the, uh, the three sixty sphere, and kind of move that along the space as I needed to. Um, that that kind of mixing made a lot more sense to my brain than mixing for uh, like 5.1, for example, um, in front-centric viewing. So as I see more things coming out, like the um, ATC 3.0 spec, that's you know it has includes AC4, MPEG-H, and we you know there's 360RA, and you know even going down to the level of the um, audio definition model. Um, I'm very curious to see how uh, workflows for may not be called game engines for much longer, um, and traditional quote unquote traditional um, production uh, now since virtual production has become such a huge part of um, TV and film using these game engines. Uh, what's when when the next versions of these come out? We'll I, I imagine we're going to see a lot more. Crossover, um, that's super exciting to me because, you know, having coming, you know, I got my start in games, but in my head, I always felt like, well, there's so much more to entertainment, interactive entertainment, than 
just shooting a pixel, just making the pixel go away. The um, and now what I love about this right now in terms of content, this 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 moment to me was so pivotal because what's what's coming together is not just these workflows, but also the idea that people coming from different backgrounds can work on projects together. People who bring something from games, who bring something from advertising, from from film, from TV, and all these other avenues of uh, of entertainment. Uh, that's what's so exciting to me right now. These the ideas and the content that we're creating is unlike anything we've ever experienced. I don't want to spoil the part in by mentioning a C word, but in this context, I have to mention the global pandemic because we have witnessed this acceleration of this convergence. You know, the films are being made in in Unreal Engine, and the edge computing is becoming. Uh, more of a thing. And then obviously 5G is very much on the horizon now in terms of how accessible it is. And maybe within the next five years, we will see like much wider coverage uh, globally. So all these things enable an ordinary consumer anywhere in the world to be able to access this uh, really sophisticated content that is rendered real time from Unreal and uh, on the systems that are very remote and you can just uh, enjoy on an device which is in your pocket with spatial audio, this head tracked and everything. And it doesn't even need to be necessarily virtual reality, augmented reality uh, piece of content, you know, and that we're going into the realms of music industry, music streaming, and and uh, we mentioned Disney Plus, you know, uh, animations and films and podcasting and and video conferencing and live sound as well. It just feels like there's really there's not a vertical of the audio industry that hasn't been touched uh, in a positive way and affected by the these recent developments that come from um, immersive audio industry as well as the immersive media industry at the same time. You know, what's interesting though, I, I thought despite the, the growth in, in um, distributed development that's happened over the, the just we has been required because of the pandemic, I was a little surprised that the um, uh, uptick in consumer uh, didn't really happen as, as, as much as I thought it would. I felt like this would be the optimum time for VR to really to really take off. Um, uh, and it did in some ways, but I have to say not as much as I thought it would. Well, you need content. That's also one thing because right now, if, if you look at least at the mainstream platform, which as we all know is, is the quest. Um, I mean, if you go on the Oculus store today, you're, it's great if you're a gamer, but if you don't exactly fit that profile, um, there isn't that much for you, right? So I think that's the 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 offer is uh, is as important, and um, we can talk as as much as we want about you know advances in in the technology and dist- distribution platforms, but if we don't have creators. Uh, really thinking about start dabbling with those tools and what is it that we can do? For instance, you know, spatial audio. I remember three years ago we were working on an on a podcast that uh, was produced completely, you know, spatial tree duff, but still. Um, and we ended up not releasing it because there was no distribution platform. But at the end of the day, I have to be perfectly honest that in 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 the sense that for that particular podcast which is you know 
essentially talk radio like this one, um, where would, for instance, be the value of having of of this being in spatial audio? Like, uh, would we have any 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 value if the four of us were each, you know, in a corner of a room, and you would you would have head tracking to to hear us talk together? We all know it doesn't make sense, right? But again, you know, we're I see our conversation really being centered around technology, and and that's fine, that's great. Um, but yeah, let, let's not forget the elephant in the room. But it's not just the content, right? It's the uh, funding sources. Like, oh, of course, yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Victor. Yeah. yeah, and we're we're past the days where um, you know the big tech companies were just throwing money at projects and or marketing companies. All, or marketing companies are absolutely right. So, um, you know, for instance, it's, it, it, yes, it's progressed, but, um, we're currently working. One of the projects we're on is, um, is six off audio only experience, um, for a museum. And it's still incredibly hard. You know, it's just tracking people in real time. If you've got, I don't know, eight, 10 people in a room, it's still, it requires a lot of development. Yes, trackers are smaller. They're more available. It's getting there. Uh, yeah, but there's still, I feel, a lot to do to democratize um, those um, that new medium that is six off audio. I think uh, you guys, you're all absolutely right. Um, it's almost like all these thoughts they, they're all present uh, in equal measure and even even speaking about lack of content yes and no it's almost like we're still in this uh motion and we haven't really not enough time has passed for us to kind of look back and reevaluate what just happened I mean, we can look at a few really like basic surface level stats um quest to almost outsold all other vr heads that have been sold so far combined um on par with uh, psvr uh, steam and oculus store have sold uh more content um than ever before but gaming and and otherwise however what ugp said like it's majority of the of, of that content are games and not everybody is uh, inclined or fits that category so we we're definitely lacking in loads of other categories big time um if we're looking at the training and education which to me feels like certainly maybe second biggest if not maybe by now the biggest uh, vertical within XR industry, not gaming as a industry globally, but yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, immersive gaming. That's interesting. Uh, I know it's a field that you know about quite well, Oliver, and it's it's one that we rarely hear about. Although we all see that, oh, for instance, Microsoft Hololens is all enterprise driven, and um, I believe uh, the new was it today that. Um, there was a new multiverse uh, platform released by, is it NVIDIA? Yes, yes. I um, think so, right? Which uh, Cloud XR. Yes, thank you. Um, that's also enterprise-driven. Um, so, and we rarely, so we rarely hear about it. Uh, we rarely see pieces uh, of content because they're targeted at, at probably closed audiences. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And this is why uh, probably it's not as exposed for the um, kind of uh, public uh, view and 
you know, analysis, so to speak, is because that content is very bespoke. It's uh, not for public release. It's, you know, typically it's commissioned by a large corporation that maybe has tens if not hundreds of thousands of people uh, employed all over the world and when it comes to delivering training on such a large scale we, we're talking about huge amounts of money and if you can find ways how to deliver the training more efficiently more effectively how to save time obviously we've got the whole covid element to this it makes complete sense and uh, the companies just realized this is this is really good this this is a, a time saver this is a money saver and Often, sometimes even um, quality of the training might be better than what's possible for, for those people in, in actual terms. Because, you know, you can, in VR, you can recreate anything you need. There's a whole number of concepts, you know, there are soft skills that um, there are obviously medical industry is absolutely huge in that, in that regard. Health and safety is massive the brand communication and brand placement within retail environments and and so on and so forth we can even go into you know more esoteric and not esoteric but maybe less common domains when, when it comes to you know um, various psychological therapies you know treating phobias and even um remedying the pain and we all know all those amazing stories and even neuroplasticity so it's absolutely massive but you're absolutely right it's it's a little bit behind the curtain for general public but it's it seemed to be growing and growing fast well it's certainly something we we know has been used for a long time in the military i know i know for sure that um We've been working on this multi-year project with NASA in, on the space station, and that's that's one thing that I remember Felix and Paul telling me when when they started talking with NASA. NASA really had this, you know, av having been working with VR from the first wave of VR back in the eighties. Um, they're probably the longest user of VR. It, it really was for them a simulation tool. And uh, they didn't conceive of it really as a as a storytelling tool, um, but yeah, it's 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 really interesting where it's going. And do you? I know it's the um, you mentioned earlier, uh, maybe for um, people listening that it, this is actually a the thing you're you're researching in your PhD. Um, what are you know very early in your research? What are your intuitions about? Um, how is spatial audio contributing to this? Yeah. Um, you may be wrong. It's totally fine. Five years from now, you may say, oh, gosh, what did I say back then? But uh, yeah, what, what, what are your expectations? I, I think um, so the way the way kind of I got inspired to do research in this area is by receiving loads of anecdotal evidence. So by being involved with a number of diverse projects that um, had um, training education um, for you know big corporations such as you know um, Nestle, uh, Shell, even Facebook themselves, especially in in, in situations where there has been previous involvement and there, there was content produced without spatial and interactive audio. And then when we got involved and um, 
try to kind of um, do our best uh, based on all the kind of uh, known methodologies and, 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 and standards that we have today, uh, we received really positive feedback from d- different hierarchies who have um, critiqued the experiences and, and training content uh, in a way that it's just you know greater sense of presence. You just just feels like it's more realistic. Feels like things feel clearer, kind of easier to focus, easier to remember, and you know. And it's all kind of um, over the period of time amalgamated into this thought process. That uh, hold on a minute, like there's definitely something there, and uh, wouldn't be great to to scientifically measure that and to what extent that you know that makes a difference and you know to um obviously this is super early days and there's so much to do and so 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 much to kind of um even when it comes to designing the experiments there's so much depth and you really have to narrow it down like what exactly we're trying to um to tease out but in 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 a nutshell we are talking about difference between spatial and interactive audio versus maybe monaural or stereo and non-head-tracked audio. What difference it has when it comes to for like a ordinary worker out there receiving like a 40-minute training that has a lot like um, a lot of information to take in and some some simulations and some interactivity um, and really see what difference it makes. But um, I'm, I'm sure I'll as soon as there's a first milestone that we've managed to hit and I'm, I'm sure I'll be sharing mm-hmm. the news with the world. But I think mm-hmm. the, the gut feeling, as, as you asked originally, is that there's definitely something out there, but we just want to be more precise and be able to scientifically measure it and um, ex, you know, illustrate that data in a more tangible way. Mm-hmm. Is, is, it, is it me or it's just almost stating the obvious that because this is actually how we process sound naturally in real life um it's just it's just more natural for us right i mean that that would that would be the intuitive uh thinking isn't it um Mm. but um just uh, some early discussions and looking at the other kind of um doing literature review and which involves um reviewing existing publications and research that may be in adjacent topics and um it might not always be what, what it seems like on the surface which makes it more difficult, but also, I guess, more exciting because it just illustrates the depth of the topic because we're entering into neuroscience, uh, which is obviously way out of the scope of what I can personally comprehend. But it's no longer about, you know, measuring some kind of stereo recording technique versus, uh, you know, surround array and sitting in a sweet spot and listening and say, yeah, this sounds definitely more immersive or better subjectively speaking. You know, there's cross modality. There's, there's so many variables in, in that process that um, it's a, it's a very frightening can of worms or, or many, many cans of worms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's going to be uh, quite interesting. The, the development, if you, I don't know, let's say look 50 years down the line, um, immersive audio will be a standard like stereo is now. It's 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 the given because it's like we're hearing. Like JP said, it's, this is the natural way how we uh, hear sound anyway. So it makes total sense that it's going to be taking over at some point. It's going to be easy enough that everybody will be starting working to work with it, at least with the new generation of engineers 
at leaving the universities and learning everything. I think uh, unlearning from the whole stereo workflow, if you did it all your life, is, is quite hard. And it's, it's also, I believe, quite different. Um, to, to, like, uh, I think immersive audio is, is, is a different way of treating and approaching um, aesthetics uh, to sound than it is from a, from a stereo uh, uh, field perspective. Yeah, and that's 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 uh, very interesting in in that sense. And that's really what presence is, right? Like presence brings us bring when we craft presence with spatial audio, right? That's what we're doing. We're 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 tapping into those like lower level thinking, so we can we can do our higher order thinking uh, easier. To me, it feels like it's heading in a direction where it's becoming less of art and more of science, and in a very very close uh, future I believe um, the kind of stuff we're talking about the kind of stuff we've been kind of practically involved with as industry practitioners will be more of a, a part of a domain of software engineers where maybe you when it even comes to like um, building a metaverse or, or game experience or whatever it's it's going to be all within the code the all ambiences and acoustics will be derived from from the geometry automatically. Um, even procedural audio will will reach the levels where you know you just need to decide what is it that you're doing within the metaverse. Are you biting an apple? Are you kicking a ball? And it, it's it, all the physical elements of that interaction from Sonic standpoint will be automatically implemented uh, within the code and you won't need to do your kind of uh, recording and asset design and implementation within the game engine. It's, uh, I, d I don't know if it's um, a slightly negative um, tone to the conversation. Maybe we all need to start learning um, C Sharp and C++ as soon as we can to, to, to retain the job. <laughs> what do you think about that? Well, it's it's always been there. I, I think this that that's part of progress. Uh, honestly, um, m yes, maybe there will be a day, Oliver, when we're completely uh, kicked out of the process, if I can say. But um, I I can assure you that um, the time that in the projects that we work on, um, especially game engine based projects. Um, the time that we spend doing project management and mundane tasks, and we we so often we actually have so very little time to mix and and actually express our art, if there is such a thing, or our craftsmanship, and um, apply our vision to what will in the end be the final user experience what people will hear and react to this actually represents a fraction of the time that we put into a project so if that two three four five percent I'm exaggerating perhaps but Victor you will agree with me that it's uh I, it is quite a challenge to have yeah sit down and say oh all right now all the technical issues are solved now we can just refine that mix and and polish it. Uh, if if that could increase up to 30, 50% of our time, it would really be fantastic. And I'm sure that um, you could hear that um, in the in, in the projects out there because you know I I, I do play uh, many VR games and, and it's not just VR, it's it's XR in general. You know, we haven't talked about augmented reality and mixed reality and um, and all of that, but 
talking with the with the audio, um, you know, the technical sound designers, sound designers, and so on that that worked on these projects. They, it's it's something I just keep hearing. They just had so very little time to actually make this sound fantastic. So um, I see this as an opportunity as well. I, I think there's also like one essential tool missing in in our world, which is in in the in the regular let's call it stereo domain. Uh, we have no way of of referencing. Um, I guess you always mix towards a track that you like and compare it to your work and and try to to basically arrive there and i, I think we 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 have by no means um, referencing sound in our workflow and also we do not have any reference content to work to it's 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 still finding that sound that we need to find and and that's all not set Yeah, in a way, we—if I could draw the connection to, uh, from a creative standpoint, to the film industry—we haven't had our easy rider yet, really. Where you know this really powerful, independent, mm. tech, like creative project that that inspired so many people. Um, you know, you're right; we don't really have that gold standard yet. Um, and I think I, I wanted to also connect what you were talking about, Oliver, with um, uh, enterprise. Uh, I think there's there's a connection that could be made to the personal computer um, and how you know when Xerox first developed these big machines and they were in um, uh, uh, they first went into the workforce, um, it, it inspired people to use technology. But when the personal computer came out, that's when schools could have, you know it went moved from like maybe one giant computer in a um, in one lab in a college to, uh, you know, my, in preschool, we, we had a, an Apple II. Um, and yeah, I'm sure, you you know, in, in Europe, there were, in England, there were Acorns and there were, you know, all the Commodores. And I think the, when the technology moves from enterprise to the workforce and then into um, all levels of education, um, that's when things start coming home, so to speak. And, Uh, uh, auteurs and artists and people who just want to create. This is what they know. This is their tools. You know, Th these are these are what their their day to day is. And I think the more um, the more that happens, the more we're going to see not only the content explode, um, uh, but then there'll be even a bigger drive for technology. And then that natural way of you know, it'll just be a natural uh, way for. The next next generation of uh, creators to think. It's a it's a generational change. Uh, Oliver, uh, I know you're going to have to go soon, but I since this is the 50th episode, I I I do have a question for you. Maybe maybe it, it might be interesting for you to um, reflect on all these people you have interviewed, you've had. Um, you know, at the immersive audio podcast, do you, can you make, can you make up some, can you draw some conclusions? Can you, is there, what is it? That, are they all just individual stories or do you see trends? Do you see, you know, um, any, anything you want to share, you know, after 50 episodes? Is your first podcast still your favorite, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Um, there's a lot of questions, JP, and uh, thank you for asking. Um, uh, I think it's kind of like all of the above. 
it's it's definitely been a journey. And uh, as weird as it sounds, I'm uh, one of the biggest fans of this podcast myself. Um, I absolutely love meeting and and talking to the members of this rapidly growing community. And as you know, the the diversity of our guests is is enormous from all kinds of corners of the industry all over the globe. There's definitely trends and. There's definitely, you know, the vastness and and the deeper you go, the more people you meet, the the more kind of um, bits of, of this large puzzle you uncover, the more you realize how how big is this this universe, so to speak. I, I don't want to get too philosophical, uh, but uh, I was making the this analogy when when I was talking to Dr. Gavin Kearney, who's my thesis supervisor, who's a former guest of uh, uh, Immersive Audio Podcast as well, quite a few episodes back, I was saying that the deeper I go into this, the more I get this feeling that I'm standing in front of the vast ocean and I'm just dipping my toes into the water. Whereas maybe, you know, six years ago, um, you know, the, the perspective was so narrow. And again, we're talking about this Dunning-Kruger effect here, but... For anyone out there, keep going, and it's it's so rewarding. There's so much. Whatever is the angle, whatever is the the previous experience, whatever the future aspirations are, it's it's as encompassing as life. I don't I don't know if if, if that makes sense. Of course it does, and and um, you know one one underlying one one thing I know for all of us is. Um, the desire to reach out and connect, you know, and I think that that's one thing you did, you know, when you decided, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do this podcast because I'm curious. I, I want to get a glimpse at least of what it, what is it that I don't know, right? There's always this huge ocean. If you don't know what you don't know, but um, so you had this initiative and you've, you've, you know, build that community around the podcast. And that's, that's up, you know, I congratulate you. That's fantastic. And I know that that's something that having known Victor and, and Enric for a long time, it's, it's also been, um, I think something that's part of, of this community and of maybe it's just any emerging technologies, but, um, wanting to connect in spatial audio to me, there's this, Victor and I a couple of years ago did did our what what you call our why you know for for your company why why do you why do you exist as a company what's your what's what's your purpose what's your vision and and I I I, I don't remember exactly everything that we we all the ideas that we went through uh, Victor but I, I know it was a very enriching process and the desire to connect was was definitely there so I I, I do see this as a common tread. Um, in in all of us, and probably same thing for for the guest that you had, um, Oliver. I, I and I do remember one episode I really enjoyed was I. I to be honest, I couldn't listen to all of them, but I did listen to many of them. Um, I did enjoy the one with um, uh, is it Matt Nutra uh, from Bose? That's that was that was very interesting also because even a, you know a company like uh, like Bose. Um, you know, coming up with a product that was maybe too um, too early for the for the market. I don't know, but it's it's this one thing. I think it's this one example where, oh yes, we have great technology, um, but what are how are people going to um, 
are they going to adopt that? Are they are content creators going to be able to create content that's engaging and so on? That's the. It, it seems to me that that's a that's sort of a call and response thing that that needs to happen. Hello again, and welcome, guys, to the second part of this episode. As you can imagine, we had loads to talk about, and we simply ran out of time first time around. So we got back together again two weeks later to discuss more, focusing particularly on project case studies, which we really wanted to dive in and didn't have a chance to do so. So without further ado, let's dive in. So how's everyone? I guess everyone's busy, as always. How was your trip, Henrik, to Barcelona? That sounded like a crazy project. Uh, very, very exciting and very, very complex. The most complex recording I ever did. It ended up being 121 channels. Whoa. Uh, so net, network audio is actually quite nice in that sense because like, you, you, you can travel with like so many channels, basically with a few bags. And setting it up is also just a breeze. Um, yeah, and, and it's crazy how that changes, like like all the things that you would have needed a, a broadcast truck for in the past. Wow. It's completely over. What, what's the, just briefly, what's the setup like uh, for this, Enric? Are working uh, over Dante or? No, I used uh, Ravenna. So I used oh, okay. the, the merging system. So mm-hmm. I had like basically a merging Anubis on my side for the monitoring and for the Tonemeister and had basically two laptops to record on, um, one for backup, and then basically four stage boxes uh, on the stage. So one in the front, I used the Ambio Cube with 16 channels, which is called the Happy. Then in the far back, another Happy. So there was another 16 channels. And on the left, on the right was... Um, always a Horus and the Horus is having 48 channels each. Mm -hmm. So it was a total of 128 channels, uh, which we could have been recording. And it's all just going through one uh, network cable. It's amazing. It's crazy. (laughs) Impressive. So what's the configuration of Ambient Cube? The Ambio Cube, it's uh, nine MKH-800 twin microphones. Oh, it's nine. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a cube, so four corners in the center. So you get a little bit of a Decker tree uh, with that. So, so you have basically loads of, of different techniques integrated in, into the system, which is super interesting. That's a lot of money in microphones. That's a lot of money in microphones, yeah. They're like what six thousand US or something? Like one uh I think in in Germany or you get them in the UK you get them for two and a half uh rent, so uh, like a okay. British pounds. What what kind of mic is that? Is that uh like a multi pattern switchable mic? Yeah, so it's it's not switchable. It's um it's actually giving you both capsules, so you still have like the front and the rear, and you can still change the polar pattern in in post production. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it can be anything. So it can be a cardioid, an omni, a figure of eight, or, or or anything. So that's that's completely. You can even automate in between uh, these things, so you can basically 
while you're listening to the music, you can automate zooming into the orchestra and zooming out and everything. It's it's like really crazy and and really undervalued. I, I hope more um, microphones will give you access to both capsules, basically. With that technique, I'm um, able to recreate any spot inside the orchestra. Uh-huh. So it's the same as uh, the symphony project, which we did with Duramel. It's, you're basically finding yourself in, in different positions in the orchestra. So next to the cellos and the violas or, or next to the, the flutes and some horns. Uh, and that, that can all be very accurately uh, recreated. It's a cube. So, I, so the top mics are quite high. So at the, at, at the, the level of the players, you basically have a quad at the outside limits of the stage, and then you've got one at the center. And when you say center, is it centered vertically as well? Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, basically the center was uh, aligned over the head of the conductor. So even the lower microphones are quite high, and then you like really have a higher mm -hmm. upper level. And it really is a cube like really equidistant um um it's you you have a little bit of freedom to play around with that uh and it it also comes down on how you then like basically uh recreate it because there's like you need to build your own decoders also for it if you then need to integrate it into ambisonics And uh, uh, so, so you have a little bit of freedom for this case because it was a 99 uh, people orchestra or person orchestra. Uh, we, we actually had the back opening up slightly to cover a bit more of, of, of the whole orchestra. Mm. Wow. The playback or the kind of the, the format that you're going to package it for, is it, I mean, it can't be just a kind of li linear piece of wood. I mean, it can be, but I guess, how do you implement that interactivity? Is it going to be like a virtual reality experience? Will it have like a visual reference or? Yes. So there's just going to be a, a, a VR experience, a, a 3 dof experience. Um, yeah. With, with the ability to zoom into various instruments closer? Um, no, you're, you're, you're going to be like you, This will be a linear uh, experience through a piece, and you you have a cut, and you okay. will be placed in, like basically next to soloists and and things like that, uh, uh, things of interest because it's also about education in in and how an orchestra works. Um, yeah, I think it would would sound really good with Dolby Atmos. Uh, yes, um, definitely. Um, it's is there any kind of integration for binaural because it needs to be binaural um i mean the my deliver deliverable for this will be a third order ambisonic mix which is integrated into unity but i guess we we need to like um need to make some fast steps towards uh object-based mixes which can be easily translated into different experiences in the end And um, and how how about you, JP and Victor? Uh, we're we're working on a on a six duff exhibition, like LBE content uh, related to the the space station uh, projects we're working on. Um, yeah, so that's uh, it's mixing uh, three duff um, 
cinematic sequences with full six DOF model. So that that's that's the main project at the moment that we're on. We literally ran out of time last time because there was so much to talk about. So we decided to get together again and get, give ourselves a chance to go into some of the project case studies that we'd love to share with you. Um, and uh, yeah, and I'd like to start with Henrik. And um, the project I would like to ask you about is Symphony VR with Gustavo Dunamel and the Mala Chamber Orchestra. Oh, yes. Great. Thank you, Oli. Yeah, that was uh, quite an exciting project, which is now touring around in Spain and um, and later in, in different countries all over the world um, to bring it basically to schools and make children experiencing this um, journey into the heart of music, um, as the director Igor Cotarellas called it. Um, and uh, it... it it is quite exciting because it was like a really huge scale and the Mahler Chamber Orchestra is really like one of the top five orchestras um, uh, in Germany. And it's uh, the special thing about them is that they are not a local orchestra. They, they are spread all over the world and they only ever come together to perform, basically. Um, so so it's, it's a very international uh, and, and, and exciting bunch to work with. Um, and of course, uh, uh, Dudamel de Maestro, uh, he, uh, he, he was brilliant and it was, uh, incredible to see him work with the orchestra in, in, in the whole rehearsals and through the whole recording sessions and, um, how he had the, this magical touch on, on, on working with these people. And, um, so also the, the, the project, uh, is so successful that they also now decided to make a permanent permanent installation in Barcelona. Um, so when you're traveling to Barcelona, you can go there. It's it's in in the La Casa Forum, uh, which basically produced a project, and um, basically you can book a ticket and and go and um, uh, enjoy it there and experience it there. Um, and the, the interesting part about the audio is, is obviously that it is an, an, an orchestra. And I think, uh, uh, recording an orchestra is still like one of the most complicated things you can do in the audio world. And, uh, also one of the most like highly regarded skills, um, uh, in, in the audio world because it's getting quite complex. Um, the interesting thing is, I guess, I, I needed to approach it from a very, very different perspective because um, in within that experience, you're placed inside the orchestra and uh, also the uh, orchestra will have different formations around you. So it, it was also quite a huge experiment on, on how, how to play with that and how we translate it in the mix. Uh, because, for instance, you had like uh, one scene where the drums are actually placed in front of you and then the orchestra is in a, in a, in a circular arrangement around you. And that was quite uh, a challenge to, to, to approach in the mix and, and to uh, really recreate that new soundscape and also to um, give you this experience when you are inside the instrument that you hear just a few instruments around you very intimately and close and then the other others still around you and still having a also 
still something that comes back from the actual hall. Um, I guess it's not it's not necessarily a realistic um, representation of how it would sound um, in that perspective. It's certainly a a, a beautified sound and also. Um, a little bit that you still hear everything properly, uh, but it's it's working very well. But it's 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 um, it's been quite an overkill in terms of the 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 spot mics which we used, and then we used the Ambio Cube to um, record the ambience. Um, and I think if 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 you're working on these things which which haven't been done before, or, or there's not not really a lot of references. Uh, for it, it it all always becomes some kind of an experiment and you need to um, then dive dive into it based on your on your um, previous experience and also intuition and and just then making the best out of it and and I think this is what I find myself uh, in more and more that it's it's not necessarily about ex like knowing what you're doing, but also having the, the, the right intuition about it and, and, and trusting in the process and that you're working with backup uh, solutions also maybe at the same time. Um, yeah, so it, it was an, an, an interesting project, but I'm, I'm very sad that it's not seeing the light of day in terms of being online and everybody can watch it. Uh, but that makes it also exciting that you actually need to to go and experience it because it's it's also having a a film which you're watching before that which connects then the VR experience together uh, which works quite nicely. Um, Enric, I'm I'm curious, were you um, collaborating with a uh, with a orchestra recording engineer that you know usually records in a in a more traditional way? And if so, um, I, I'm I assume there were interesting conversations about the you know, the approach to recording an orchestra and what was trying to, what you guys were trying to achieve with this piece, which is completely different compared to uh, the more traditional way to, to present those, those recordings. Mm -hmm. uh, no, not, not really. I, I have some experience in, in recording classical music, um, but it, it's not my flagship skill really. Um, and, I guess it 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 just I just happened to be in that um, in that position, and I uh, basically got a lot of trust from the client and the director in letting me do that. And I did have a tone meister. Um, he he was absolutely fantastic. So it was uh, Dimitri Lipai. Um, he uh, he was basically just in charge of the, uh, the the he was a musical producer and he was also brought in by Dudamel, and when when his word was basically law. So when he said the take is fine, then it was fine, um, and and that was it. So so I was in a char in charge of designing the whole recording system and how we recorded it. Fantastic. That that's interesting because for for those of us, um, you know, at least I, I know in North America there is you know no such thing as a as a tone meister. Um, can you explain um, 
yeah, a bit a bit more in details. It's all it's all in judging the tone and the presentation as well as the the interpretation, or it's really from a really from a timber perspective. Um, yeah, I, I think it's 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 kind of a collaborative process in uh, in in between conductor. And like he, he's the person who is sitting there with the whole score and he's listening to, to all the groups and just make sure that all the groups perform, um, accordingly to, to the score and how it's uh, interpreted. Um, so I guess you need to, um, have uh, the same vision of interpre- interpretation of the piece when you're the, the, the tormeister and the, the conductor. And um, it, it, it's a it's a very interesting and specific skill, and and which I really adore. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it, it's it's about judging dynamics. Uh, if a group needs to be louder or lower, or if they need to play more powerful, uh, judging fortis or, 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 or tempo, or or if they are on time. So th- there's there's loads of things. Um, that they need to judge, and it's basically the the insurance for the conductor because the conductor is in the space and is uh, conducting, and the tonemeister is basically sitting there listening to to the microphones and uh, is having basically a magnified uh, ability with that and, and can can judge the uh, the recording uh, way better from that perspective too. I was going to bring a slightly weirder example from from a film industry. It's almost like um, a script supervisor who is also a sound mixer. Yeah, not yeah, only exactly. they in charge of making sure that correct dialogue is delivered, they're also in charge of the quality of the sound recording. It sounds like a lot like the role of that the composer would have for a film score, where they would be, you know, with the charts and um, uh, in the control room. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, that's that's all part of it. Yeah. And Dimitri was actually Dimitri Lipai. Uh, uh, he won one um, Grammy uh, of the immersive category, so that was my first touch with the person that won that, and and he was really great. Fantastic, Henrik. I wanted to ask you about um, Ambio Cube as a this sort of holistic approach, because uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's not just a microphone recording technique per se it's it also implies a a particular type of microphone but also um specific uh decoding software and that is then desired to work with uh, specific playback systems but obviously that can be converted to alternative playback scenarios but can you just um, uh, elaborate on the whole um ambio ecosystem and how it all connects to each other uh, yeah, I guess uh, there, there's many different uh, ambio things out there, but like this is specifically geared towards like uh, uh, it's nine microphones and it's a cubicle array and a center uh, uh, microphone and it's using the MKH-800 twin microphones. And the special thing about the twins is that you get um, two channels out of one microphone and you have both signals of the front capsule and the rear capsule. And this means that you can actually still um, change the polar pattern uh, in post-production and can even automate it. Um, So you have a lot of flexibility on on how much you want to have from the space and actually from the instruments 
and and can zoom in and zoom out uh and it's a lot of fun working with that there there are some plugins for the twin itself which is not necessarily geared toward the, towards the, the the cube uh it's just a plugin for the for the um microphone and you can change the polar pattern on a slider uh, which makes it very easy, but you can just do that simply manually. Um, and so there's not necessarily a decoder. You can, for instance, just um, pan it directly to a 9.1 system and and like assign the, the speakers to um, to the separate microphones or you you run it through an Atmos system or decode it to... Uh, Ambisonics, um, but this this needs to have like actually quite advanced uh, encoding and decoding techniques to to make that work uh, in a very nice way. Um, so, uh, but it's 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 a very very flexible system, but also quite expensive. Um, but it's beautiful to work with, really. What would you say are the kind of core differences when it comes to talking about? Ambio Cube in relation to maybe other more conventional recording techniques that also involve height, or, or even in comparison to maybe um, an ambisonic recording with um, additional spot miking and things like that. What are your personal observations? Mm, oh, the, the the flexibility in post certainly, um, because I think you you make a decision uh, on the spot on where to place your main system. Uh, like be being it uh, any any kind of like from AB stereo to to any immersive recording system, and this is then how, what what you're imprinting into your recording, and uh, with the uh, with the cube, it you you can you you still have a lot of flexibility on 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 how you perceive the closeness or um, of the orchestra and. So you can go close and and further out, which which you won't have with any kind of other system. You know this is uh, this is what you get, um, and and that's uh, very very powerful. Okay, well, basically in a nutshell, it's kind of you do it this way, and then from there you can extrapolate pretty much anything you 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 can imagine, more or less. Yeah. Having said that, sorry to interrogate you on this. Um, I want to talk about vertical imaging and 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 height uh, within this context. So, obviously, the microphones are configured in a in a cuboid shape uh, with a with additional center mic right in the middle of the cube. So, how high the height microphones are in relation to the mid microphone, um, and what are your thoughts on the vertical imaging it really depends on the situation that you're facing um be it the size of the orchestra um like do, do you have a very wide arrangement or is it a, a smaller group of musicians and in this way you will determine the size of the cube anything from 60 centimeters uh, per side to uh, I don't know 120 or some people go even even bigger in in that size and uh, determined on this you will also basically place your your center microphone this can uh, easily help you pushing or pulling your your center image or height image also coming back to our first 
part of the podcast where we talked about uh, where we've come from, where we've been and where we're going, where we are now, etc. Have we achieved like a really, really good way of capturing and deploying spatial audio, in this case being like orchestral recording, in such quality, such fidelity, such precision, and also such flexibility for... Uh, for post-production, but also for consumer, maybe if we add the whole object-based media concept, where people maybe even control, you know, the the levels of different sections of the orchestra, have we achieved the the top? Um, can we go any further from here, or or what's what what else is missing? I guess we we really advanced a lot on 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 these capture technologies, and it's opening up new ways. Um, it certainly covers uh, all the, the 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 technologies that that are existent, and also new possibilities. If you combine it with spot microphones, you can basically generate any kind of listening position within the orchestra. And also, um, if we take it further and and get a higher number of um, spot microphones. Um, then we can have such a spatial resolution or um, spatial uh, accuracy that we are able to move through the recording and uh, in in for an instance with a with a hundred piece orchestra that's becoming very interesting. Um, that's interesting what you're saying, Enric. Uh, I think it also opens up the question of. We've been recording orchestras from uh, the perspective of of being an audience member and having a certain perspective on the orchestra. Whereas, if we do embrace our medium, that's that's you know immersive spatial audio, it just opens up um, so much more possibilities of, of course, uh, being in the seat of of the conductor, but also moving. Uh, inside the orchestra, in a way, at least if we're talking about six stuff, that's that I think is a fascinating experience for for those of us who have had the opportunity to be um, on a stage where an orchestra is performing and be able to move um, in that inside that space. It is an absolutely fascinating experience, and I think that if if it's something we can offer to people. Um, it's it's really something new. It's 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 a completely new way to to appreciate music. Uh, specifically, when it comes to six degrees of freedom experiences, and you're able to walk towards every single instrument and musician, and to to explore the single lines which they are playing, uh, it's becoming a, a a great tool for for educational purposes. Um, also, experiential purposes. I guess it's it, it's it is very very special to um, be able to 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 study an orchestra close by because usually you are just in the position of sitting in a concert hall and you just have to be sitting still, sit in in silence and and don't move. Yeah, even the venue the venues are designed for audience listening purely and you know the venues might need to change too you know uh, Oliver you're asking about like the technologies and and Henrik you mentioned you know you talked about the flexibility in the studio and 
you know, one of the things that needs to be overcome is, I mean, we're still, I mean, people still have issues with undecoded midside, um, you know, in sound libraries and, and, you know, front centric media. How much flexibility does this kind of recording allows you in terms of, would you be able to uh, make a mix that's really traditional, a, a stereo presentation as we're used to, and also uh, be able to something that's at the other end of the spectrum, that's sick stuff. That if so, that's quite fascinating, actually. And and to to be able to imagine, um, you know, the different kind of experiences that you can create uh, appreciating music with this type of of, of recording and, and the various mediums that it involves. I think that's, to me, that's where it, it should get at next. But uh, maybe that's just my interest. Yeah, absolutely, totally. And, and I, I totally agree. And the, the great thing is that it it it's giving you all of these things. Um, so you 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 can certainly uh create a, 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 a traditional mix out of that because it's it's all included within these recording technologies. Um so so that's really fascinating. So so if you're actually deciding to record in this way, you you're still having all these other products or mixes that that you can use uh, and and release uh, so it's not just only a vr experience it's also an atmos mix it's a, a stereo mix it, it's it's everything and and that's that's really a strong point for it i guess so uh, what what do you think in terms of um going from vr to mixed reality and basically the difference for sound is three degrees of freedom and six degrees of freedom and then we're compatible with anything, any kind of medium, is that right? Would you agree? I think it's a bit more nuanced. You know, I think the content, the audio content, sure, it can translate for sure. You know, the the tools, the, um, the mixing and integration and uh, authoring and implementation, um, the, you know, those, the authoring and implementation, those are, those translate, but there's more to it than that too. I think there's the, uh, Yeah, I think what JP was alluding to with, um, uh, you know, integrating the real-world audio, you know, there's there's definitely potential for bringing in the sound of the real world in a naturalistic way that is more more important. You wouldn't even consider that for a virtual reality experience because it is completely transportive to another reality. You know, with mixed reality, like we're that yes, the content and the six degrees of freedom that aspect is still there. But um, there's just I think there's a lot more to it yeah, that we need to consider. Talking about the ISS project would probably be a, um, a good one because it's um, the scale of it and the, it's still running. And I think the angle of multiple distribution platforms, I think it's really important because it ultimately underpins uh, some of the core fundamental factors that we're discussing here is creation, and consumption and delivering that kind of niche content to the masses, which ultimately then you know feeds back and fuels the development of the industry, which is absolutely crucial. It's it's very interconnected. I agree because that yeah, and one of the challenges in in the let's just take the VR XR you know industry challenges we all know is funding, right? How do you meet um, an audience and actually end up 
making money. Um, if you want to do something that's not a game, you know, games are great. Don't get me wrong. And and when Oculus decided to, you know, spin, um, do some kind of spinoff and say, hey, you know what, for, for a certain number of years, we're, we're thinking that this is mainly going to be a gaming platform and it was most probably the right move. Um, it's great, but how can you do narrative content? How can you do art? How can you make things that are more experiential in a way and uh, still fund them and still be successful? It is it is the most fundamental challenge facing this industry. And um, our parent company called Felix and Paul Studios, um, you know, across the years, we we um, got to do some projects that really required being able to work with very strict protocols, like working with the with the White House uh, at the uh, Obama era, and then um, we we did um, Space Explorers, which, uh, you know, started collaboration with NASA. It took us to Roscosmos as well in, in, in Russia. And um, the next step was, uh, and it sounds crazy at first, but the next step was uh, let's go on the space station. And, um, and we got there and it's such a challenge to um, bring equipment and make that happen it is it is so complicated and costly that the only way to make that happen um if if you don't have a you know a, a big tech company funding funding you like it used to be back in the you know four five six years ago with oculus google and so on um is 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 to think how can you take that content and adapt it to to several mediums in order to you know to be able for it to be um, uh, to make sense from a financial perspective. And so what, what kind of happened is the project really started as uh, 360 uh, video aboard the space station, but the biggest ever media project done aboard the space station. It, we, we've got hundreds of hours of recording um, filmed by the astronauts themselves. Um, quite, quite a few challenges from the audio perspective, um, but... Uh, in terms of taking that content, so far um, we we have done two out of four um, 360 VR episodes, which are absolutely incredible. And, and I'm really not saying this because we worked on it. It is uh, an incredible experience in cinematic VR, but also um, there's a version for domes, so planetariums across the world, there is um, a version for more traditional uh, cinema. And uh, now we're working on another project that's sixed off LBE where audiences will be able to um, basically walk inside the space station and outside in the void and uh, again, uh, consume this content in, in a different way um, with a different uh, feeling of presence. So I think that's it's quite inspiring. It wasn't the plan at the beginning, um, but in terms of audio, uh, in terms of presentation, there uh, that pauses uh, you know new challenges. How can you take that content and make sure uh, it adapts well to all these mediums? Well, you literally took words off my tongue. I, my next question was, how do you approach the audio capture and post production? 
Can you record anything at source, so to speak? And if yes, how much do you you can derive from that and how much more effort you need to put into the post-production for for 3D audio, for all these uh, deliverables that you mentioned? If you were filming, I think, anything on Earth, um, I mean, it's the most hostile environment, right, to film in uh, besides maybe underwater. Um, but in terms of, production audio the only thing we're we we have access to are lav mics that astronauts you know put themselves put on themselves and you know they're not uh necessarily pro-grade equipment it has to be easy to use so you're not going to send uh zaxcom transmitters uh over there uh <laughs> if you want so and and of course the the quality uh varies it's it's extremely challenging the material we we receive um so um i can tell you that isotop rx gets is uh we really uh you know um value this tool uh, on this project but that being said that's so that's the only source um so there are um, the first challenge yeah the first challenge here is that there's no gravity um so um well it's actually microgravity but one of the problems is uh the the camera that's being used so i'll do a parenthesis um on felix and paul i've developed a custom camera over the years and We've done a very interesting collaboration with Frown Offer. We use a technology they've marketed as, I think, Upmix. Uh, it is actually um, a ring of microphones. Um, up here. Up here. Thank you, Enric. Thank you. You know better than I do. I should. Um, and it's actually it's actually a, a ring of eight microphones that, and we have an algorithm to upmix it to third order ambisonics. That's super useful. We we use it on numerous projects, um, but for this, it was not it was not possible to use the the Felix and Paul camera because it does require a crew um, to be operated. So they really needed something that's you know push and record, and that's it. And uh, this camera has microphones on it, but it's not really usable um, more than a reference. It, it is it is an array of microphone, but the problem is that um, since um, again we're in microgravity, the heat generated by the camera, which as we all know in VR cameras is quite tremendous, stays there. It 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 doesn't move up naturally as it does on Earth. So you need to have fans that basically spin like crazy. So um, it, it is an exceptional challenge. So we, we haven't been able to use those spatial um, microphones, um, the microphone, unfortunately. But um, we do recreate everything in post. Um, so extensive Foley, we've been... Uh, in touch with um, the acoustics group at NASA, who do a really fantastic work of you know these things you you don't even uh, consider, but living you're these people are actually living inside a machine uh, for three, six, twelve months. Um, so um, the environmental noise uh, is 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 heavily controlled. Um, but but it is there, and you've got um, you know a different room tone if you want in in every module. It's quite interesting, actually. Um, so we've had to recreate those and and mix those spatially, and um, you know we know 
a lot about the materials uh, inside the space station and all of that knowledge has been um, shared to us. And I think a lot of it is public actually. Um, yeah, but it, it's been quite interesting. So we start with that. We start with the 360 uh, mix, you know, uh, tree duff. And, um, and from that to uh, pour that to a dome environment, um, the interesting thing is that it's still a sphere. So um, you can use most of the ambisonic uh, layer, uh, whatever is not headlocked. Um, you can use that and, and it translates quite well. There's of course some, some remixing to do, um, but it does translate really well. The only place where I was surprised and um, maybe a little bit disappointed is, um, and is when we're mixing for film, where um, in documentary for, for theatrical, um, most of mix, as we know, is, is, you know, dialogues are mono and even sound effects, most of them are, are, center channel and the music is really the thing that's submixed and and feels a little more immersive um so um the the for this we um extensively used um the arpex uh x plugin was was super uh useful um to uh create essentially um um, if you want shotgun mics, virtual shotgun mics in the scene and maybe follow a character or a point of interest if that makes sense. Interesting. Well, most commercial venues with domes in them are still very much 5.1, aren't they? There's a very good paper that was made last year, which um, I can provide a link to, and maybe you can share it with, with the community. Um, um, interestingly, uh, it, it's very uneven. Um, Fraunhofer have a proprietary format, which maybe Enric will know the name of. Um, I don't remember it, but I know that some select uh, full domes in Germany use this format. It's um, so it really, um, you know, uses all. If you have extensive microphone, uh, sorry, loudspeaker arrays in inside a dome, you can really use that. Um, then you've got some more experimental domes that have custom. Um, speaker arrangements. So they're all great if you're mixing a piece just for this specific venue. But if you're um, um, creating content that's more commercial, um, unfortunately, yes, you're you're down to using uh, 5.1. That is correct. But you're using the the number of channels, but you would be mixing in, at least what I did, um, was mixing in a very different way from you know if you were mixing for for television let's say traditional 5.1 so guys you also mentioned about future plans to turn this content into six off experience um, for location-based entertainment can you talk a little bit about that process because I, I suppose there are even more challenges and fundamentally different challenges to face um, when it comes to reappropriating content for that format and for that deployment system yeah, we are working with um, uh, Felix and Paul to turn the ISS 360 video projects into a traveling exhibit. Um, that'll be uh, what JP referred to when you can walk through the virtual ISS and um, the 360. Some of the content from the 360 videos, very cleverly placed and um, accessible in VR by users uh, in a shared space. So the users will be able to enter this exhibit. 
see the I, a virtual ISS come and land, and then hear the, the astronauts talk about their experience and watch these 360 videos inside of a six-off experience. So being able to walk around and trigger uh, these videos individually and, and watch some of that content. So it's another great way to repurpose it um, so we, you know, for not just the domes, not just VR and VR platforms, 360, you know, cinematic VR on, on the platforms, but also in person now that, um, uh, you know, COVID vaccines are rolling out and exhibits are starting to be planned. It's very exciting because we can get people in headsets now again, um, in a way that seemed so promising, a, you know, a, couple, a year or two ago, um, uh, we can, we're getting back on that track. So the, 360 content translates really well. Um, you know, it, we, there's a player inside the six uh, uh, six off experience that um, plays these videos and allows for head rotation as normal. But it, um, you can also step out of the 360 video and be back in the six off world. So that's a great way to combine the experience of being on the uh, the uh, a virtual ISS in a in a more stylized way with the cinematic. Uh, uh, footage uh, and from the uh, the ISS experience, and what's also going to be interesting is that uh, crossing fingers uh, for August, uh, what Splen is is the first um, spacewalk film in in full 3D 360. So that's also uh, going to be part of the experience. So if if uh, what's interesting is that uh, they're called hotspots where you have access to if you want bubbles of 360 content, they're placed where they are, you know, really inside the space station. But if you're going to be walking outside the space station, then you will have uh, some hotspots recorded directly in the void of space. So that's going to be quite interesting. Um, Of course, uh, there's not going to be audio (laughs) um, recorded in space. I was going to say, what's worse, there's a vacuum in space or digital silence? (laughs) Yeah, I know. know. That's a good question. We'll uh, we'll follow up on that. Um, Yeah, we'll be we'll be of course um, writing music for this. Um, Yeah, but I think it's going to be quite a quite a fantastic experience. So, um, so this is an interesting prod. You know. Project, but also if you, uh, from a broader perspective, looking at uh, really creating creating some content, planning uh, all the post production, um, and and be able to say, well, it's it's going to be presented over several mediums. So it 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 is interesting in terms of challenge, and I think that's that's quite new, and it's quite courageous to to go this way from from Physics and Paul Studios, and that's something I think that more content producers. Um, will be doing, you know, very soon in the in the near fu- future, hopefully, uh, because it will allow this this content to be viable on on several platforms. I think what's exciting about it too is it's not just a okay, we also need to make this for PSVR, we need to make it for the Oculus Quest, we need to make it for, you know, different versions of the same, you know, type of experience. This is taking the same content and thinking how can we deliver this content in different ways across different types of media. That's that's what's exciting because it's leaning into what's unique about the content uh, across media. As a regular tradition, at the end of the episode, I always ask everyone the same question. So guys, collectively, you represent the decades of experience. What would you tell 
your younger self back in the day, what piece of advice would you give? And would you give a different piece of advice to yourself at this stage of your career? Let's start with Henrik. Um, keep going. I always had this urge in me to uh, work with sound. And, and I think if, if you have something inside yourself which you want to pursue, then it's important that you keep going. Uh, and and uh, like for, for me, uh, I guess in, in Germany, working with sound is, is not really the, the safest career or the outlook of achieving something is, is, is not really great. Um, so it, it was kind of taking a risk in, in, in choosing this career path. Um, and, uh, so it's, it, it pays off when you, when you, when you just try to pursue your dreams and, and I'm very thankful for, for, for being in the position, uh, on, on where I am, um, right now, because, uh, I guess when I started working with this, all this was non-existent, um, um, and so it, it's quite an interesting thing to see things developing before your own eyes uh, when you just work through through everything. I've been thinking about this a lot recently, um, and it's maybe a little bit of a banal answer, but um, I think the one thing I would tell my younger self is to not only plan on on change, but plan for change, and. And I mean that in a very like, practical way. Um, like when I'm I'm working with uh, because my focus is on interactive. When I'm working with developers, uh, planning a new feature, it's really easy, you know, early on in, in your in your career to think, okay, this is how it has to be. This I envision it. It's a perfect vision. It's going to be like this, and this is what they told me. And when is it? You know, and if it changes, that means that. I have to start over and scratch scratch things. It's very it was very frustrating, and what I realized over time was that my job is really to understand what the immediate ask really is, but to plan for every possible permutation by keeping my planning sort of broad. It's it's a bit hard to put into more concrete terms, but um, you know I think about it and. Uh, if we think about something very simplistic, like some sort of interactive audio system, like uh, I always talk about footsteps or or things like that, like if if the system, if you're planning it and you think, uh, okay, we have here's the animation and we're walking and I design the most perfect sounding naturalistic footsteps or we you know I recorded them, oh but the animation timing changed or uh, they the animations stayed the same, but they are playing the animation faster now. Um, you know, how do we plan for that from the get go? You know, saying it out loud feels very uh, systemic and and like and very like computer programming. You know, scripting oriented. But really, what I'm talking about is just you know not being married to something, not being married to one concept, um, and allowing. For what I think is fantastic about that, this this beautiful friction between what's almost like a binary nature of the technical side of this and the more fluid nature of the creative. That's what I try to focus on more and more now, and I I, I wish I had learned that earlier on. I don't think it, it's really about audio. What I would have liked to tell myself back then, um, maybe stuff like you know, everyone's trying to. F- figure out what it's about, just, just, you know, um, 
go ahead and and be open to opportunities and and change and be conscious about um having an um infinite mindset you know i th- i think we're i think for the four of us and and we just we just love this we we love spatial audio we love um the possibilities that it offers we love the fact that it's it's uh, we get the the you know the opportunity to be trailblazers in a way of this very little thing uh but be able to discover and i think what what you know i'm grateful for uh and i i i tell try to tell this to myself every day and it's cliche but um this is not about an end goal it, it's about having um the privilege to play the game to be able to to work on those projects and this you know facing adversity all the times with you know technical issues mostly uh not creative ones uh but really it's 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 this pleasure of of being able to to do this on a on a daily basis i think that's personally that brings me a lot of joy and also that um relationships count you know sometimes we're i know i'm 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 more of a a person that makes no tends, at least younger, tended to make no compromise for the sake of creativity. But it, it's really more about um, doing it together with with other people, and there's there's a lot of joy in that. And and yeah, that that counts. And um, yeah, and I feel really privileged, for instance, to have um, Victor as a, as, as a partner and the rest of our team. Um, that's that's really, really fundamental. So, um, for your mental health and everything else and allows you to, to achieve more. So yeah, these are maybe things I would, I would tell my younger self. And even more so, you know, what you were mentioning about basically the complexity of things and the, 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 you don't know what you don't know part and, and you know what you don't know. And I mean, if we were back in the, I don't know, 1500s, you know, that the, the human knowledge would be so limited that you had a chance at mastering it all in a way. But, but now it's, 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 it's growing by the second, uh, the, the, the amount of knowledge. So, uh, it may, it makes it even more important to focus on, on that bit that you're in and 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 the relationships and what you can build not just relationships but more uh the collaborative aspect of them and what you can do together like personally i feel so much stronger when i know that hey we're tackling this project and there's this there are these things i completely like i know very very little about but then i can turn to victor and or other members of our team and oh they're 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 taking it, you know. It's okay. I don't have to know all of this. It's fine. So, yeah, I really I really um, think the same as you. We're social creatures, aren't we? And I think it's somehow this podcast is uh, it's a bit of a metaphor to what we've just been discussing here. It's a it's a vehicle, a platform for me to connect and ask questions and talk about things and share something and then collect it and organize it and deliver it back to like-minded people in a presentable fashion so people can listen to it uh, also kind of participate although be it more passively um, also participate in that process and it's kind of all part of the same thing bigger picture 
50 episodes. I mean, it, you're not a, you're not a, you know, radio broadcasting, you're not the BBC or it's, it's, it's quite something. Having done that on your own is impressive. So congratulations. Again, thank you so much, guys. I'm very grateful for your time. It's been immense pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, it was very nice talking to all of you and I hope to see you sometime soon in person. All. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye guys. Before you go, we want to hear from you. If you'd like to let us know what you think about our show, please take the quick survey in this episode's description. It'll help us make the immersive audio podcast even better. We really appreciate your feedback. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast, hosted by Oliver Cadell. This episode was produced by Oliver Cadell and Emma Reese and included music by Rhythm Scott. Got an idea for an episode or want to comment on something we've discussed recently? Drop us an email at podcast at 1618digital.com or find us on Twitter at iAudioPodcast. If you've enjoyed our show, head to our page on iTunes and leave us a review and rating. It really helps us out. Visit 1618digital.com slash immersive audio podcast to access show notes and other episodes and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. I'm Emily Reese from the podcast Level with Emily Reese, and I interview people who make audio for games, mostly composers. Our newest episode features composer Gordy Hab about his music for Star Wars Squadrons, which is absolutely outstanding. You can find us at patreon.com slash level and levelwithemily.com. Hi, this is Michael Helms, host of the Location Sound Podcast. On episode 85, I spoke with production sound mixer and boom op Chris Bell, based out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We talk about working on the feature film Unearth, where he recorded location sound on set and did the post-audio work. Check out the latest episode. Hi, this is Christian from the A Sound Effect Podcast. In our latest episode, you'll hear field recordist adventurer George Vlad from Mindful Audio talk about his travels and work including his latest library, African Desert, all at soundeffect.com forward slash podcast. Hi all, this is Becky and Susan from the Sound Girls podcast, where we speak to audio professionals from all walks of life. Join us Tuesdays at 9 a.m. and listen to the amazing array of sound humans talk about how they got into the biz. And a few cool things, like roadie nicknames and fizzy water preferences. You can find the Sound Girls podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as our website, soundgirls.org. Hey, everybody. This is Tim from Tone Menders. In our latest episode, we talk with four-time Oscar winner Richard King. He tells us about the ultra-complicated sound for Christopher Nolan's latest film, Tenant. We talk about creating interesting sound design for scenes happening in reverse, how to build cinematic body punches, and his thoughts on the controversy over the film's dialogue mix. Listen wherever you find podcasts or at ToneBendersPodcast.com. Hi everyone, this is Sam Hughes, host of the Sound Architect podcast, where I interview audio professionals around the world about their projects, their careers, and their advice. 
I've spoken to some of the most amazing sound designers on the top games, TV shows and movies of our time. Our guests also include some of the biggest composers of our generation and some of the most amazing voice actors I've ever spoken to. Catch the Sound Architect podcast wherever you listen to your podcast or at our website www.thesoundarchitect.co.uk. See you there. In our modern lives, we spend so much time thinking about what things look like that we tend to forget about our incredible sense of hearing. That's where we come in. I'm Dallas Taylor, and I'm the host of 20,000 Hertz, a podcast that reveals the stories behind the world's most recognizable and interesting sounds. In each episode, we chase down the hidden backstory behind a famous sound or sonic phenomenon. We followed sound designer Ben Burt on his hunt for the sound effects of Star Wars. He was hiking and his backpack caught on a, a guy wire that was leading up to a radio tower. And he heard what sounded like a blaster sound. We found out that dinosaurs probably didn't sound anything like Jurassic Park. If we were around when T-Rex was around, we might feel these sounds of the largest dinosaurs more than we would hear them through our ears. We've tracked down the origins of a drum sample that's been used in hundreds of hip-hop and electronic songs. During that time, everybody had drum breaks. And we had been doing songs where Greg would play these drum beats. We've explored the challenges of interplanetary communication. It's pretty amazing to think that I could be on Mars and say, Houston, I have a problem. And it'll be 40 minutes before they get back and say, what's up? And we've revealed how the Netflix audio logo almost included the sound of a goat. For a while, we were stuck on that goat sound. I thought that would be a good time. (laughs) This year on 20,000 Hertz, we'll uncover the origins of even more iconic sounds. Our dog. We'll also hear from a few surprise guests. In this run of Daffy, he's not the greedy money. Ooh, that's mine. Give that to me. We're bringing him back to the, uh, I'm Daffy. You know, Uh, we are all time travelers going one way. Subscribe to 20,000 Hertz wherever you get your podcasts. That's 20,000 Hertz spelled out without any numbers. Once you see our swirly purple icon, you'll know you're in the right place. And if you're already a fan of the show, tap the share button in your podcast player and post this trailer on Facebook or Twitter, or text it to someone directly who you think would love this show. 